So we will continue in our lessons in Christology. Last time we were together, we looked at um, the, the the grace that Christ, uh, Jesus Christ, uh, possesses, um, and we are continuing to do so. Um, and last time we looked at uh, what does it mean for us to have original sin. Um, and uh, if you guys are interested, I have a podcast or episode. Uh, I don't really do podcast episodes as like I used to, but there is one that I listened to yesterday, which uh, was a panel on original sin between a Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox and or, or Oriental Orthodox um, and uh, someone else. But um, and they just pretty much go over their um, their views of original sin. Um, so. Uh, and I think, oh, I think the, our reform person's on there too. So if you want that, I can send that to you or just, I can let you know the, uh, podcast episode on that one. Um, but we looked at original sin and we saw, um, what does it mean for us to be, our confession talks about all of our faculties being defiled. Um, and what I simply mean by that is every part of man, um, is now habitually inclined, uh, and disposed and disposed to sin. So what does that mean? And we looked at not only the scriptures, but also what uh, the overall universal Catholic Church has said concerning uh, original sin. And that is basically a disordering uh, in the members of our bodies. Uh, you remember we talked about how now, um, because of Adam's sin, uh, our, our sense appetite, that is our affections and all, and all those things, uh, our, our emotions and all that, uh, they now override uh, reason, and now reason is uh, subject to that which it shouldn't be subject to. Uh, reason is not subject to God, but reason is subject to what's called our sense appetites or our affections or uh, uh, and the things that we desire. Um, and it shouldn't be that way. And now what we have, because of Christ uh, and the grace of Christ, um, that disordering that is within us are now it's now being brought back, okay. Um, and this evening, we want to talk a little bit more about, and this is all, all all under the grace of Christ and also under the gifts of the Holy Spirit, okay. Um, we want to now talk about now that we are saved in Christ, um, and even before that, when we believe upon Jesus Christ, we have to ask. Now, what is the Holy Spirit doing within our lives? Okay. Um, and what's the grace of God doing for us? Of course, we, and I'm already presupposing that you know, as we have argued that the grace of God um, is the grace of Christ that comes to us via the Holy Spirit. So, let's say you have Jesus Christ in his humanity. The Spirit takes that grace that Christ has in his humanity and brings it to us, the members of his body, Many times we talk about the Holy Spirit is working on us, right? We all use that type of language, or we use the language of the Spirit is sanctifying us. We all have heard that before, right? Or God, I need your grace um, in order for me to be, in order for me to be like Christ. Well, what exactly then does the Holy Spirit do in the believer? We ask. Well, we must ask. And then again, the answer usually is He's working on me. How does the Holy Spirit work on someone? What are the principles? What is the engine by which the Holy Spirit works on someone? I hope that makes 
a little bit of sense. Um, and it's getting a little bit more into the weeds of those work of sanctification that has been that's, that's happening right now currently in us. How can we be like Christ, so to speak? And the answer is much more detailed than just having the Holy Spirit, right? And relying on the Holy Spirit, which is true. But the Holy Spirit also gives us certain principles for us to live what uh, theologians would say, the divine life now. Uh, Peter talks about us being partakers of the divine nature, us being like God, us being like Christ. Well, how can, on in, or rather in this life, how can we be like Christ? And we will look at now the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. On the account of the Holy Spirit, without measure, Christ, in his humanity, possesses all of the virtues to the fullest degree, and without the possibility of increase from the moment of his conception. Again, on the account of the Holy Spirit without measure, Jesus Christ, in his humanity, possesses all the virtues to the fullest degree, and without the possibility of increase from the moment of conception. So Christ, and we'll look a little bit um, at this um, toward the end, but Jesus Christ has the fullness of the virtues, the four virtues, um, moral, cardinal, intellectual, and theological, and he cannot increase in those virtues if he's given the Spirit without measure, right? So someone is, that's been given the Spirit without measure, then they cannot increase in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to argue, you're taking notes, the virtues are essentially gifts of the Holy Spirit, okay? The virtues are gifts of the Holy Spirit, so Jesus Christ cannot increase in these gifts. Um, what is a virtue and how does it relate to a habit? So we're going to talk about a little about virtues and habits. Um, we don't talk about virtues. We don't talk about habits specifically, generally, but also in, in our Protestant Reformed um, context, as much as we used to. If you were to read some older works of theology, maybe from the 16th, 17th century, they're going to talk about virtues and habits in relation to sanctification. Um, and the reason why uh, is because that's just what the church Catholic, the universal church, talked about. This is, this is how medieval theologians, um, and you can find it in the 6th century of Maximus Confessor, when he talks about the spiritual life of the believer. Um, and the spiritual life of the believer... Um, what accompanies the spiritual life is the virtues. Since habit, or habitus in Latin, is a, the genus of both virtue and vice, we cannot rightly know virtue or vice unless we first know what we mean by habit and how these habits are distinguished from another. So if you're taking notes, you can write, what is a habit? Habitus. What is a habit? A habit indicates possession. And so it is understood as a quality which we possess. A habit indicates possession, and so it is understood as a quality which we possess. One has defined a habit as a quality which is difficult to change, whereby an agent is disposed easily and readily to follow a particular line of action. That's pretty simple, right? I mean, in a nutshell. Because we all can point to different, you know, habits in our own lives, can we not? Again, a habit is a quality 
which is difficult to change. So something in you, a quality that's difficult to change, whereby an agent, that is you, is disposed easily and readily to follow a particular line of action. So do you remember last Sunday evening, um, I talked about when I was younger, I had a, and I, because I was, I used to play basketball, anytime I would go to anywhere, if I see a hoop, I see a basketball, I'm going to go take the ball and go shoot at the hoop. I had this habit of doing that. Or uh, if pizza was there, and I would say I went to um, someone's house and they offered me pizza, I had a habit of always eating the pizza. It's like I could not not eat the pizza, right? You guys can think of different habits in your own lives. Um, Monday comes along, you know at 6 o'clock you go to the gym, right? You guys have also created a habit of what? Waking up at a particular time. I cannot sleep past nine o'clock anymore. Even if my alarm's on because I have this habit of waking up at eight, eight thirty. I just cannot sleep past a certain time. So we all have, if we looked into our own lives, habits, right? And these habits are very difficult to change, are they not? Um, It's sort of like you need a whole month uh, of training yourself uh, to let go of this particular habit, and that's what you're doing when you are um, when you are developing a habit. Is you are training yourself, whether you know it or not, to a certain point where it's just second nature for you to do the thing. Uh, and I hope that makes sense to all of us, um, because it's true in our own lives. We could point to various things. Now, flowing from habits. So if you if you have habits on your on your paper or, or wherever in your mind. Habits, flowing from that, you have either virtues or you have vices. Virtues or vices. Okay, so habits, virtues or vices. What is, what is the distinction between virtue and vice? Augustine says this. Virtue is a quality which makes its subject good. Vice is a quality in respect of which the soul is evil. In a nutshell, a virtue is a operative habit which is essentially good, whereas vice is a habit that is essentially evil. So, when we talk about virtue and vices, it's simply this. If you say, I have a habit of virtue, you're going to say, basically, I have a disposition to do the good. And if you say, I have a habit of vice, you say, I have a disposition to do the evil. Okay? Um, for, for example, okay, for example, uh, let's say a soldier is on the battlefield and um, there comes a time when he has to, uh, he has to take one for the team. Um, he has to offer himself up in this self-sacrificial love and he has to, you know, go into the battlefield so that you know, his other troops can escape, you know, the other way or whatever. What that soldier is doing at that moment is he's exhibiting uh, the habit of courage. Okay? And let's say that soldier again comes up, you know, to the situation where he has to uh, help his teammates once again. And he does the same thing. He goes before his teammates and he helps them. What that soldier is doing is he's creating, without knowing it or not, a habit of courage to where anytime he's in that situation, he cannot do anything other than 
virtue, which is the good. Okay? Now, many of us in our own lives, we can speak to various ways in which we act virtuous. Okay? Um, there are many of you, when, uh, when uh, Christmas rolls around, you just get that particular person a gift. Uh, without them having to tell you to get them a gift or anything like that. But also we understand the, the habit of vice because we are dead in our sins. We all understand what it means for us to have this disposition to move always when temptation is presented, the right temptation, to do evil. I hope, I mean, let's just say before you became, before you became a Christian, you understand uh, if someone was to present to you a particular temptation, 10 times out of 10 or 9.5 out of 10, uh, times out of 10, you were going to indulge in that habit of, of vice. You had to, you had this disposition toward evil. And this is what the Bible clearly says, right? Jeremiah thirteen twenty three. can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change his spots? Then you as well can do good who are accustomed to do evil, doing evil. Accustomed is that, um, that is, that is that, that habit by which we cannot do other than the evil. This is what Jeremiah is saying, is he not? This is how the Bible speaks of our sin in Adam. That we do evil uh, because we are accustomed always to doing the evil. So in Adam, before we were sent, before we were saved, we have a, we had a, a habit of vice. And you might even still have a habit of vice. Whether it be, um, whether, you, whether it be an attitude problem or something. Maybe it may, whether it be, uh, uh, cursing. Uh, whether it be, you know, various things like that. You, you might have that. Um, despair. Not believing God's word. Those things like that. Now, within the virtues, now we'll talk about the virtues. That is the disposition to do the good. We distinguish between four kinds of virtues. There are, there are moral, intellectual, cardinal, and theological. Moral, intellectual, cardinal, and theological. For our sake this evening, we're going to talk about the theological virtues. The theological virtues. What are the theological virtues? They're simply this, faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. Paul speaks of these in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Let's read from verses, I'll read from verses 11 through 12. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with those childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have also been fully known. But now faith, hope, and love remain. These three. But the greatest of these is love. So here, Paul is speaking about how when he was a child, he reasoned like a child, but now he's been given this uh, supernatural life that he sees through only a glass dimly. He sees the end. He, he sees all of that, but through a glass dimly. And, and what is helping him in this, in this time of him seeing through a glass dimly, it is the virtues of faith, hope, and love. And the, the queen of the virtues, Paul says, is love. Love is the queen. It, it's what makes 
love, or it's what makes faith and hope um, uh, pleasing and acceptable to God, but also right for us. Okay, and also, saints, hope you know um, you have faith, hope, and love now as a, as the, the as the uh, theological virtues. One day you will not need hope, and one day you will not need faith. Faith will give away, hope will give away, and what will remain with you in heaven is a heart that is fully inflamed in the knowledge of God and the love of God. Um, but what faith and hope are doing is they're carrying love with, you know, in, in, while you're in this, um, while you're in this, this, this pilgrim state until you get to that state by which we see God face to face. Now, why are these called theological virtues? Why are they called theological virtues? They're called theological, simply put, because they can't be acquired. They can't be acquired. Okay? The theological virtues of faith, hope, and love can't be acquired, as opposed to the other virtues, let's say moral, intellectual, or cardinal. Someone can acquire the virtue of courage. Someone can acquire the virtue of temperance, of prudence. Someone can acquire these things. Some can even acquire the virtue of love and hope. However, as we we're going to see in a bit, um, they do not in line with the way in which God has prescribed for us to have the virtues of love and hope. So man can acquire certain virtues. You have done those things in your life. Before you, became, uh, before you were saved, uh, and even after, you have acquired these various goods within you. However, when it comes to faith, hope, and love, you cannot acquire these things, but rather God must give them to us. That's why they're called theological. You don't, you don't earn them. You don't merit them. God gives them as a gift. As a gift. They're also theological because these virtues have God as their object and final end. Again, these virtues are theological because... They have God as their object and ultimate end. The virtues are simply for us to reach the good. We're all looking for the good. Someone who has the virtue of courage, they're doing something. The final end is for themselves, but also a particular person, their friends. And that is a good thing. Virtues are stable dispositions for us for us to turn and move always toward the good. Okay? <coughs> Excuse me. When we talk about the theological virtues, which is the highest good other than God himself? God is the ultimate good. Um, and the theological virtues help us place our minds... And always look to the glory of God. The glory of God. Um, now, when we talk about the virtues um, and the habits, again, like I said, the Reformed have talked about this under the umbrella of sanctification. Under the umbrella of sanctification. Um, and this is what's going to distinguish the Reformed from how Roman Catholics speak about the virtues. In fact, I have one, there was one person um, 
who I, who I like, he said that if you want a good summary of sanctification, just read Roman Catholics on justification. When we talk about this process of growing into the likeness and the knowledge of God, well, yes, we talk about that, though, but in sanctification, you know. And when we talk about the virtues, we're not growing in these virtues in order for us to be pleasing before God, but rather we're growing in these virtues in order for us to be like Christ and thereby being pleasing to God. Um, no way, shape, or form, though, is us being pleasing to God the ground, the basis of our salvation, or rather our free acceptance before God. But it is only solely upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Like I said the last time we were together, no one's going to receive Christ for justification without also receiving Christ for sanctification. You cannot say that I believe in Christ not without also being like Christ. And here with the virtues, the Holy Spirit gives us principles by which we can be like Christ. Okay. Um, the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 77, says, Where do justification and sanctification differ? So we know about justification and sanctification. Where are they different? It says, Although sanctification be inseparably joined with justification, yet they differ. In that God in justification imputes the righteousness of Christ. In sanctification, his spirit infuses grace. And enables to the exercise thereof. So in sanctification, God gives to us grace. And this grace is to do what? Enable us. Enable us to perform. um, And to cooperate. And to obey the law of God. And all of what God has commanded for us. You see, saints, um, the Christian... As, as a whole, um, especially the reform, we never believe, even in sanctification, that we're doing it alone. Right? This, the beginning of the Christian life, at, your, at, at, at initial justification, God gives you grace. And then he gives you grace to believe. And then he gives you grace to continue to believe. And this is what we learn in sanctification is, God continues to give and pour out grace into the soul of the believer. Even in your state now, where you may be struggling, he's giving you grace so that you can be formed um, and do the things that God has called you to do. There's no excuses, in other words. There's no excuses for us not to live the way Christ has called us to live. Because the Spirit, who is God, very God... Is dwelling within us and gives to us grace. The Puritan John Owen, when he spoke of the Holy Spirit's work in the believer, he said this. He doesn't just say, the Spirit is there and he's doing something. But notice what he says. He gives us habitual grace. Habitual grace is simply that stable disposition of the soul by which it can be moved by God to do the good. It's, it's the softening of the soul so God can move the soul a principle of grace, opposed to the principle of lust that is in us by nature. This is the grace that dwells within us, makes us abode with us, makes it abode with us, which, according to the di- uh, distinct faculties of our souls, wherein it is, or the distinct objects about which it is exercised, receive various uh, gifts, being indeed all but a new principle of life. And then he's going to go on and he's going to talk about how this habitual grace, it, it, just, it just in floods 
floods into the soul and just changes all of us. Okay? Um, in other words, this habit is a new principle that alters all the members of the soul so that they are enabled to obey and love God. You see, saints, when we are saved, God not only gives to us a standing before Him, but also He gives to us principles by which we can be like Him. And these theological virtues, they change the sinner to become, in this life, imperfectly, and then in the next life, perfectly, like Christ. It changes the sinner so that, as Martin Luther would say, we can be little Christs here on earth. <laughs> now, we have to distinguish what he means by that. Not that we are little Christ in the absolute sense. Not that we are little Christ in the sense that we be, are literally like Christ, but we have and possess all of what Christ has and possesses so that we can be raised up and be like him. Now in this life, imperfectly, in the next life, perfectly. You see, saints, um, when we talk about these virtues, we're just simply going a little bit deeper into what we mean by the Holy Spirit working within us. Now, as um, for our time, we want to talk about the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, and what are they, and why do we need them. Um, faith, let's begin with faith. Faith is a theological virtue by which we believe in God and believe all of what he said and has revealed to us. Faith is the theological virtue by which we believe God in God and believe all of what God has revealed to us. This is why, saints, we are to believe that faith primarily and solely is a feeling. And you might have heard that before. If you have, um, this might be of some correction to you. It was indeed for me when I first learned it. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is not a subjective feeling. But faith is knowing and believing confidently the truth. Faith is not a feeling, but it's knowing and believing confidently the truth. This is quite different if you talk to a Mormon missionary. When they talk about their salvation, they might give you an objective answer. That is to say, something black and white on paper. There it is. Check it out. You can analyze it and all that. They might give that after they talk about the subjective feeling that they know that they know. A lot of people love to use that. I know that I know. Well, you can know that you know, but not know that you know from a feeling perspective. You can know that you know from an intellectual spec perspective. Like, I have studied, I have, I have seen all the arguments, and I know what I know is true, rather than a feeling. So when God gives the person faith, he doesn't give you a fuzzy feeling. You know, your, your tummies don't begin to have butterflies in them, okay, when God gives you the virtue of faith. But rather, when God gives you the virtue of faith, he raises the person's intellect and mind. To do what? To believe a supernatural truth. Again, saints, we talked about this last time we were together. That before, think about, think about before you became a Christian. And think about now all of the things that is required for you to be a Christian. Well, you have to believe in the virgin birth. 
That is very hard to believe because virgins don't have babies. You have to believe that dead men can raise from the dead. That is, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. You have to believe that a book is actually inspired by God. That's very hard to believe as well. You have to believe many things that are hard. Many supernatural truths. This is why atheists, it's hard for them to believe in Christianity. Because they have to let go of their naturalism, their materialism, and accept the supernatural realm. Accept that there is a supernatural order in life. Right? And so, what God does is He gives us faith, He raises our intellect to believe things that we didn't believe, things that are hard for us to believe. Faith then bestows upon us a new and higher light within the human so that we can know and believe what God has revealed to us in Christ. We could say that faith is the gift of illumination. It's the opening of the mind just to, to believe what we previously would say that is weird, uh, sci-fi-ish, uh, very difficult to understand. Um, um, so the, the starting point for faith is not our subjective feeling, but it's in God who speaks to us. And when God speaks to us, he moves us to believe him and what he has spoken. I mean, that's what, that's what God has done in faith to us. The moment, I mean, there's many times when you, I'm sure, have heard the gospel, but the moment when God saves the sinner, he speaks and you listen and you hear him. And what he's saying at that moment is not irrational, but it's actually, it's actually the most rational thing that you've ever heard in your life. That is, yes, I, I am a sinner. And yes, I do need forgiveness of sins. Yes, I do need a Savior who has come, that is Jesus Christ. The Bible speaks of this, 1 John 1, 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness of all at all. Here John relates the message that, he's, that he has heard, the message that he announce, announces, is what? It is light that has illuminated him, and now he presents that same light to them. Ephesians 1.18 I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Oh, Jewish writers would, would sometimes interpret this as the eyes of the mind would be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, which are the, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. John 12.46 I have come into the world as light. So whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. What stops the person from remaining in darkness? Believing. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, light, let light shine in out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Again, God has given us this light. And it is the light of knowledge of the glory of God. John 1, nine, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. Jesus Christ is that true light. You see, saints, what faith does is, and, and, and this might be useful for you, is faith doesn't just merely raise up the intellect so you know things about God. 
But God gives you faith so that you may know God. You may know God, not facts about him, but you know him. Um, similar uh, to if you were to think about maybe your favorite, um, let's say, movie star, Denzel Washington. You knew everything about Denzel Washington. You knew the high school he went to, the things he eats, all this other stuff, right? Let's say you went to his house and he knocked on the door. And a security guard came out and said, what are you doing here? You said, I'm going to talk to Denzel. I know Denzel. I know everything about Denzel. Again, but you knowing about someone doesn't mean that you know that person. Doesn't mean that, as we will see, you have friendship with that person. And what the theological virtue of faith does is it allows us to know God. Let's now consider the theological virtue of hope. Hope is a grace confidence that God will give eternal life to me. It's a grace confidence that God will give eternal life to me. It is a confidence in the promises of God. Hope allows the possibility for Christians to trust in God, especially when things seem difficult or impossible to receive. Again, hope allows the Christian, he gives them the possibility to trust in God, especially when things that seem difficult or impossible to receive. We all can say amen to this. We all can point to various times in our lives when it seemed like um, at the end of the road there might just be a dead end, that it's only going to get darker and darker. But God has given us this virtue of hope that in spite of the odds, uh, we believe something that's you know, hard for others to even come to grips with. Uh, why are you still believing in this? I can think of, I can think of um, Providence Reformed Baptist Church. And I can even think of our own church. Uh, you know, with, specifically with Providence Reformed Baptist Church, the time that they were going, going through, it was, it was literally within a church a civil war. Um, people were talking about other people. Um, the room was split down the middle. Um, and it wasn't a healthy church to be a part of at that time. And you had many people leave the church, and I'm sure that those who left the church were telling the other members who are there at the church, why are you still going there? What are you still doing there? That church is going to eventually die out. The same can be said with our church as well. Um, there have been many, I'm sure, that, that you have conversations with that told you, you know, this. see the amount of people going to that church? Uh, see what they're doing at that church? Uh, look at this new church that I'm going to. Look at people going here. Uh, look what's happening in, in this person. Look how many things that we're doing in this church. Um, but God has given to us uh, this virtue of hope, to see things that others can see. And hope is always going to be in line with truth and what is right. Um, and and praise God um, for those saints at Portico Church, but also for the saints here. And God continue will do continue will do this to to all of us within our lives. The Christian <clears throat> the Christian life, saints, is a life of hope. And the Christian and, and the scriptures speak of this. Um, Hebrews four fourteen. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the, uh, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Let us hold fast to this confession that we have, knowing that someone has gone before us. I mean, we have never seen Jesus Christ. We will see Christ eventually. We read about Jesus, 
But Christ says to those people, blessed are you who have not seen uh, and, and, and who, have, uh, who, have, who have not physically been there, but yet you still believe you're more blessed, right? Um, and, and praise God for the faith and the hope that he's given to us. Psalm 146, 5, blessed, blessed is he whose help is the, is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is a confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Isaiah 43, But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like, on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. The Christian life, again, saints, is a life of hope. And we can, we can, we can now, because of God's grace, um, we can rely upon God in a way that we didn't rely or hope about hope uh, in God. I mean, think of before you became saved, um, <clears throat> especially uh, if you were if you were like myself for a, a little period of time. Um, you know, atheists and people like that they have no hope. There is no hope for the future. If you do not believe in God, you have no hope. And mind you, I'm not saying believe in um, you know just God generically. But the God of the Bible, Muslims have no hope. Mormons have no hope. Jehovah's have no hope. They have, but we have a sure foundation. And little by little, God is continually to increase that virtue of hope that's within you. I mean, think of the various things that's happened in your life, lives, the various deaths. Imagine, uh, and if you've gone through a specific hard death recently, Imagine that person dying five years ago. How would you be? Imagine that person dying when you were saved. When it was maybe, uh, when you were just months in <laughs> to your salvation. God has, and, and think, and think of, think of that time now, and, and, and when you look back, you say, man, it's, how did I get through that? Because God has given you the gift of the Holy Spirit and the gifts that come with the Holy Spirit. Why do we need the virtue of hope? Because hope keeps us from discouragement. Hope, hope offers to us joy and courage and sustains us in the times of trial. Hope allows us to live, grow, and per- persevere in the faith. Hope raises our will just as faith raises the intellect. Hope raises our will so that we can place our trust entirely upon God and have confidence in eternal things. And lastly, love. Love. Love raises up and purifies our will so that we can cease to love the things of this world and love God for his own sake. The last line there is huge. God for his own sake. There is a difference, saints. I mean, even before you were saints, when we were sinners in Adam, we did love. We all had the virtue of love, did we not? I mean, there were various things that you loved. Um, however, there is a difference between the virtue of love that we have in the flesh and the virtue of love that now we have in the spirit. I gave this example, and I just went off the top of my head, and I think it was a good example in uh, Sunday school. But all of us love various things. So, for instance, you can say, <coughs> I love pizza. Okay? Uh, we all can say we love pizza, uh, I think, hopefully. Uh, but we all, to a certain extent, we love pizza. I love pizza. I'm probably... I mean, if we were to take a poll in here, I love pizza more than anyone in this building. I love the way pizza smells. I love the way it looks. I, I just, I love everything about pizza. 
But when I say I love pizza, what am I, what am I, what, what type, what, in what manner am I loving pizza? Well, I'm loving pizza for what pizza can do for me. I'm loving what the pizza does for me. I'm not loving pizza for its own good, for the good of the pizza, but I'm loving pizza for the good of myself because, um, in, you know, I buy, if I buy pizza on Monday, um, on Thursday, it's being thrown out. Right? I'm not going to preserve it. I'm not going to take pictures of it before it, I throw it out. Um, I'm not going to bury it and, you know, hope to, it resurrects one day. I'm not going to do any of that stuff. I do not care about the pizza in that way. I don't care about the good of the pizza to prolong its life. Um, and also to eat it, which is the prolonging of the pizza's life. Pizza is meant to be at, uh, eaten and then um, digested. So I'm loving pizza for the sake of myself. Okay, um, This is how car dealers love you. Car dealers love you for the sake of themselves. They love, they love the idea of you spending money. They love the idea of you um, giving, giving them all of what you have earned. Okay? Um, and you can think of many other people you know, in, in, that, in that position, right? Um, so that type of virtue of love is not the way in which God has prescribed for us to love. Now, what's different between the virtue of love that we have now? Well, the difference is now, because we have this virtue of love, we now love for the sake of God. We don't love God for what God can do for me. Which might be how many of those people who go to those Justin Bieber concerts think about the love of God. I love in order to receive. But rather, when we talk about the theological virtue of love, is we love for the sake to love one who is worthy to love. God above all else. I love God not so that I can receive. And I love God for the good of God. See, that's different from how you love. I mean, when I used to play basketball, I thought I loved basketball in the good for in, in the good of basketball, but basketball doesn't care about me. Um, nothing, no, 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 anything that we love to a certain extent, earthly wise, doesn't care about you. Your car doesn't care about you. Your car can be sold and be given to someone else, and then there you go. Um, but when we talk about our love for God, though. We love God for the good of God. And we love God for his own sake, right? You see, saints, what we have and how the Bible speaks about our love for God and the love that this mutual love between us and God, it speaks in the most beautiful way. And one of the ways it speaks about our love and our relationship with God is friendship. The love of friendship. Um... Aristotle and Plato, when they, when they were asked, um, can, can man be friends with God? They say, no. God and man have nothing in common. Man cannot uh, be friends with God. Uh, God cannot be friends with man. But saints, what we see in the incarnation is because of Christ and the love that was poured out on the cross and through his life, we now are friends with God. 
John 15, 15, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slaves does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. Because all the things I've heard from my father I have made known to you. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, than a person laid down his life for his friends. This is the love of friendship. This is the love that Jesus Christ exemplifies for us. You know that love that we love for the sake of the person and not for ourselves? Jesus Christ has that love, does he not? He loves us for the sake of ourselves, not for his own sake. Jesus Christ is not a sinner. He doesn't need to die for himself. He doesn't need to live for himself. But he dies and lives for the good of others. And with relation to Christ, with all the virtues, um, Jesus Christ has these virtues of faith, hope, and love, but he has them in, a, in the maximalist, most perfected state. Okay, Since he is without measure, he doesn't have the virtues um, little by little like we do, but he has them fully and completely. He has faith, hope, and love, but he doesn't have faith, hope, and love the way us pilgrims have faith, hope, and love. Okay, um, He is given the Holy Spirit without measure. He possesses all of these virtues. Um, and in salvation, what Christ does is he gives to us what is his measurably, little by little. Because if we were to have them all, we would never sin. But saints, the great news is this. One day we will have one of them, love, in all of its you know, completeness and fullness. Um, the, we receive the virtues that Christ possess. Everything that Christ has, we have. We will have. That is such great news, is it not? That everything is his, that is his, we have. <clears throat> Becoming, being conformed to the image of Christ is chiefly coming to partake of what Christ is in his person. This is the fullness of salvation. Not just a perfect standing before God, but is being like our Savior. And everything that he has, we possess. Everything that's his, we have. And since Christ is the head of the church, since he has this capital grace, he gives to us and he communicates, his, he, uh, communicates those graces to the members of his body and saints he does that not only privately when we are praying reading our word but especially every sunday morning and evening he does it in a myriad of ways does he not but the chief and the two highest ways is through the preached word and through the sacrament of the lord's supper and if we do baptism and that's wonderful is it not saints that every single sunday when the word of god goes forth it is grace being given. It is the virtues of faith, hope, and love being uh, uplifted little by little within your soul so that you can live according to these virtues. You can live the divine life. You can live a virtuous life. You can live a moral in life. This is what it means to live in its complete sense, the moral life. This is what it means. So saints, you have these virtues of faith, hope, and love. Use them. Use them, simply put. They're there. Uh, when it's time um, uh, for you to utilize hope, utilize it. Pray that God, in that moment, God, give me hope. 
just raise up this virtue of hope within me. Um, with faith as well. Uh, especially when we come to the Lord's Supper. Lord, allow me to believe in things that I have not seen, things that I have heard and only read. That Jesus Christ has come in the likeness of sinful flesh to live, die, and rise for me. Now give to me that salvation. Confirm in me that great salvation. Give to me the grace of Christ so that I may be like my Christ. I want to be like Christ. And also, love. Uh, love others, not for the sake of what they can do for you, but for the sake of their existence. For the sake of their own good. For the sake of for their own sakes. Love them like that. Um, this is why, saints, we preach the gospel. This is why we urge sinners to repent for their own good. Not for our good, but for their good. <laughs> um, so, saints, uh, that is the theological virtues. In a nutshell, there's much that can be said. Um, but uh, uh, in closing, again, we have these things. Now use them. 